Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, March the 26th, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Over the last few years, and in particular, I suppose, since the US presidential election of 2016 and the Brexit referendum of that same year, we've heard more and more about how political debate and argument is being driven less by traditional ideological and policy differences and more by what are generally called culture wars. These so-called wars over issues such as racial and gender identity are in turn often framed as a battle over what limits, if any, should be placed on speech, whether that speech takes place on college campuses, on the pages of newspapers, on social media services like Facebook and Twitter, or indeed anywhere else. It's a pretty complex and sometimes exhausting, and to my mind anyway, often pretty unproductive debate, which frequently degenerates rapidly into ad hominem abuse and insults about wokedom and cancel culture and the like. However, it is impossible to ignore the traction which these issues have gained in public discourse and the way in which they impact on broader society. So is the central accusation true that free speech, which is arguably the most important right in any functioning democracy, is currently under real threat? That is the belief of my guest today, Andrew Doyle, whose new book is called Free Speech and Why It Matters. Andrew, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Maybe we should start with what, uh, it's a phrase I hate, but maybe we should start with your journey, because it's <laughs> an interesting one of how you landed up writing this particular book. You've had, uh, you, you've been a comedian, a satirist, you have a certain kind of presence on Twitter, you've been a teacher, um, you've been lots of different things. So maybe it might help just to put that in context first. Okay, um, well, when I started out in my adult life, I, I was all set to be an academic and I was a a part-time lecturer while I was uh, researching for my doctorate and um, then I got put off doing that by one of my supervisors who basically warned me that I would end up insane uh, running around the quad screaming why have I wasted my life those were his exact words Um, so I did get put off uh, from doing that but also I was writing plays and writing comedy and sketch shows and that kind of thing in tandem with all of that and I was often getting the bus down, because I was in Oxford at the time, so I was getting the bus down to uh, London to rehearse and put on plays at a fringe venues and that kind of thing. Um, and then I ended up um, getting out of academia and living in London because I there was an elderly woman who used to come and see a lot of my shows and she basically said, come and live with me for free and you can write. So it was like having the equivalent of a patron. Um, so I was very lucky in that respect because I didn't have any money and I wouldn't have been able to do it <laughs> otherwise. And so... And then I ran out of money completely and and decided the only thing I could do is teach. So I became a teacher and I was a teacher for a number of years. All the while I was doing stand-up. Uh, and then I started earning enough from the stand-up circuit to go part-time. And then I started earning enough to go full-time as a comic. So I ended up as a full-time stand-up comedian um, and I wasn't teaching after that. And uh, then I started writing political articles and articles about culture for Spiked magazine and then various other things came out of that. So I started writing for other publications um, after that. Um, and so I've had the sort of two dual careers. I've had the sort of writer, satirist, comedian career on one hand, and then the sort of um, cultural and political commentary on the other. Uh, although I do think the two sort of inform each other and help each other. 
And that's where I've got to, basically. And as part of that, we should mention as well that you uh, you created a, a, a very successful, I think she has 600,000 followers now, a fictional Twitter character. Yes, um, but that's uh, Titania McGrath, who is a, a character who I li- uh, just invented to, uh, I suppose, to satirise uh, the kind of conduct you see on Twitter from a certain, uh, a particularly zealous type of, of social justice activist who, uh, you know, want to be offended by absolutely everything um, and have found a kind of uh, way to legitimise bullying others. Um, you know, they, they're positioning themselves on the side of the angels as a, as a means to 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 justify vicious and bullying behaviour. And I thought there, there was an interesting uh, contradiction there. Uh, some of the more zealous uh, social justice activists are are everything that they they claim not to be. They they are everything they claim to be fighting against. You know, they're not really for social justice or equality or liberalism. They're against all of those things, and they're certainly against free speech. And so I thought it was quite an interesting. Uh, satirical idea to embody that kind of character so that's what happened there and then that led to she's written a couple of books and and she's been on uh she's had a live show and that kind of thing so um so that was going on as well uh at, at the sort of same time um so yeah so i suppose the theme of the book is is an increasing threat to free speech i suppose and one of the things that's that's notable and i think don't think anybody could argue with is that many of the arguments in favour of free speech and against censorship used to be framed um, with the left being in favour of free speech and conservatives and people on the right being in favour of certain constraints of speech. I mean, I'm speaking to you from Ireland, obviously, and it has had a long and ignoble tradition of censorship of lots of different kinds of speech, including some of its own its own greatest writers. And that would have been my experience as a, as a young man was to was to kind of see that in action and other forms of censorship. But now... It seems to have switched around and the criticism of constraints on free speech seem largely to be coming from the political right and the defence of constraints on speech seem to be happening to the left. And that seems to be going on for a long time. So one of the first things I want to ask you is, is this a debate that goes back to the political correctness toing and froing of the late 80s and the early 90s? It's connected, I think, but it's not the same thing. I, I think um, one of the most common errors that people make is to assume that the political correctness m- movement is uh, the same thing as what we call the woke movement or the social justice movement. They're very, very different, in fact. Uh, and the the, the 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 current sort of identitarian, what you'd call an intersectional movement, no one really knows what, what to call it, actually, which makes it quite a, a difficult thing to grapple with is at its heart uh, authoritarian. And uh, the political correctness movement wasn't about that. That was about trying to sort of develop uh, the ever-evolving social contract so that we have a broadly agreed uh, way in which we address each other in the workplace, in public spaces, in schools, in that kind of thing. And that's just called politeness, really. I would say there were there were certainly elements of the political correctness movement that were overzealous and went too far and people were you know, fired when they shouldn't have been fired. And things like that happened occasionally, but not very often, actually. And I think, uh, broadly speaking, uh, it was necessary and and we did, and it did help uh, society. I remember when I was a very young child, there were quite um, unpleasant um, and common, commonly heard sort of uh, certainly homophobic slurs, occasional even racist slurs on TV, for instance, things like this. And I don't think that's helpful for a society. And I think we reached a point where, we all understood that this is not uh, the way that we should uh, behave. So to me, the political correctness movement was a good thing. And I would say that the um, the current movement is not that. It's a kind of uh, uh, perversity of that notion, I suppose, is what I mean. 
I suppose people might push back against that though and say that perhaps um, there's a there's an English rock music writer I can't remember who he is but he essentially suggests that um you know whatever albums were released at the time you were aged 18 are always going to be in your view the greatest albums of all time and equally yeah. we all have a moment in our life perhaps when we think things were just like, just about right just the way that they should be and there's a continual tension between conservatism and whatever you may want to call the other side liberalism progressivism whatever where conservatives are thinking things have just gone a bit too far um and i just wonder you know i mean are you suggesting that sometime between i don't know the oasis blur wars and the millennium that political correctness went too far and it had a sweet spot beforehand? No, because I don't think it is political correctness. That's my whole point. I mean, I'm not one of these people that looks back fondly on the the artists and culture of my youth and says that was the golden era. In fact, if ever I want to read a book or watch a film and I want it to be good, I'll make sure that it was uh, produced before I was born. So I'm, I'm not one of those people that has that kind of nostalgic uh, feeling about, about that. Um, I, I, I would say you always have to be on the guard against... Um, falling into the trap of thinking that just because things are changing and society is changing, that's a bad thing because you're not accustomed to it. But that's also a misunderstanding of conservatism. Conservatives are, although the word does mean, you know, obviously wanting things to remain, to conserve, to keep things the same. But actually the philosophy of conservatism doesn't mean that. It, it, It doesn't, it isn't resistant to things changing. It's more about adapting to change. Um, and I think the left right thing is a bit of a misnomer. I think as you've already pointed out, uh, you know, I think when we were both young, we would we would have associated calls for censorship with the right. You certainly did see that. I remember very one of my very explicit memories is of the the, the tabloids, the right wing tabloids, trying to ban David Cronenberg's film uh, Crash, uh, and that is the kind of thing that we now see from leftist publications or self identified leftist publications like the Guardian, uh, which I don't consider left wing really, but but it does consider itself to be. So I think that's uh, the change, and that's an interesting shift. However. Um, it isn't really a partisan issue. I mean, even today, you will hear people on the right calling for censorship. You will. I mean, when Joe Brand made her joke about Nigel Farage, people were calling for her to be arrested. Um, and that was coming from right-wing voices. So this isn't about left and right, really. It just happens that at the moment, most of the voices calling for censorship are predominantly those who claim to be left-wing. So that is true. I've got to push back slightly on that. I've got a quote in front of me here. It says this, the movement arises from the laudable desire to sweep away the debris of racism and sexism and hatred. It replaces old prejudice with new ones. It declares certain topics off limits, certain expressions off limits, even certain gestures off limits. That's uh, former President George H.W. Bush in 1991, which is really when that mm. whole political, political correctness debate was really kicking off. And that's, that's yeah. a clear political articulation which sounds pretty much identical to what's being said today. Yes, but he's talking about a different movement and he's doing it from from a different perspective. Um, Just because uh, someone's critique of the political correctness movement uh, has echoes of some current critiques of the social justice movement does not mean that the movements are identical. Uh, That would be a a flawed way of looking at that. Um, I think uh, often you hear rhetoric reverberating in different contexts. It happens absolutely all the time in politics. Um, The mistake... Uh, the the trap there is to assume that they're talking about the same thing and they're not. I should say that I have a lot of sympathy for much of the um, many of the arguments which are, which are made in the book, and um, maybe we turn first of all to where I think you, and you've already suggested this. The whole thing started. Um, the whole thing being this this movement, and you you write about um, the the French intellectuals of the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies, Foucault, Derrida, uh, who looked to understand 
the world really in a different way through the prism of language, that the world was a human construct constructed through language. Uh, and that truth, I suppose, was 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 malleable or could be reconstructed as a result of that. And then later, more in English speaking universities, that that concept was um, developed um, to apply to a set of progressive political notions which could be progressed, or so the theory went, uh, through changing language and the way we use language. And there, therefore, what we've ended up with is this war over language. Is that a fair kind of representation of what you're saying? I think that's right. I think the, uh, I would argue that that is the the origin of this. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I can't say for sure, but but I'm, I'm convinced of those arguments. I mean, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've read about the, the way in which Postmodernism and uh, certainly the the, post, the French post-structuralists you've just mentioned there um, sort of sowed the seeds of these ideas. And then what happened around 1989 is you get a sudden surge of activism within higher education from from teaching staff. And, and they call this applied postmodernism because, of course, Foucault and Lyotard and the rest of them were not attempting to uh, uh, apply their ideas to society in in that kind of way they were theorizing whereas the um applied postmodernists of the of the late 80s and early 90s were very much trying to change society and this is why we now find ourselves in a situation where higher education is dominated by activists or at least academics who are activists first and scholars second and that's where a lot of the problems do come and of course this does end up seeping out into into culture uh, much, uh and what you end up with is a discourse and um a, a, a very sort of a mainstream discourse, I would say, that is uh, that has its roots in postmodernism, but is actually not postmodernism. Is actually a kind of uh, a misunderstanding of, of postmodernism. In fact, the postmodernists were very much pushing back against grand narratives, and and part of that would be whatever whatever that might be in terms of science, in terms of religion, politics, whatever. The grand narratives of history was something which was fundamentally what they were trying to deconstruct, um, and this. And it's interesting to me that those who claim their lineage from the likes of Foucault will now push their own grand narrative, which is that they are on the the right side of history. This is their grand narrative that they have embraced. And actually, were Foucault alive today, he would have a, a, a lot of fun, I think, deconstructing um, the woke movement and, and, and pointing out how it's completely opposed to what he believes. So that, there's an interesting tension there. Can I suggest another way of, of, of framing that process? And maybe this is the... the old uh, economic determinist uh, within me, which is that the academy is not a fixed thing. The academy, the universities as they existed in the 1960s when uh, those French writers were at work is, is extremely different from what it is now. Apart from anything else, universities and third level institutions have exploded in size and a far, far higher proportion of the population now has third level degrees. So their their position within the the society itself is very different and that feeds into questions of who are elites and what is defined as elites now we see that for example in the way that increasingly both in terms of the brexit vote and uh, american elections um voters are defined by whether or not they have a third level education or not so what i'm saying is that third level education is now an entirely different kind of a thing and that that has to be one of the contributing factors into the kinds of changes that you're talking about. It's not just a bunch of academics sitting around in tweed jackets, although they probably don't have tweed jackets anymore, having these arguments with themselves. No, that's right. Um, More people are going to university, to put it simply. Um, You know, back in the 60s, very few people did. I mean, it was very interesting uh, when it came to the Brexit debate. I mean, the the statistics around this, it was very interesting the way that this was spun. You know, people were trying to say, well, um, more educated people tended to vote Remain and less educated tended to leave. Of course, forgetting 
that uh, most of the people in the older bracket simply didn't have the opportunity to go to university. It was a strange thing that was missed. Um, but yeah, I think that's right. I think more and more people are educated within a system uh, that promotes activism. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it is the case now we have reached the point where, I mean, I, I, I know because I, I was a teacher and I've spoken to pupils who have gone into that system recently and emerged from it in a kind of uh, indoctrinated form and are, and are actually less capable of critical thinking than when they went in. So that is a problem. I think you're right. And I think that is because of the nature of the academe has changed and the nature of higher education has changed. Uh, and it is now the case, certainly in the humanities and the social sciences, that um, in order to succeed in those degrees, you, you not only have to be uh, good at what you do, you have to be um, in agreement uh, with the, the academic activists who are marking your work. I've had explicit experience of this where one boy uh, produced a fantastic piece of research. I know because I was... Um, I read it. I was involved in. The, uh, he interviewed me as part of it, and uh, the the ac- academics in question wanted to fail the piece because the the argument he was promoting was against their ideology. Um, but you know, it was far more sophisticated than most of the things that they had produced. So I think it's very interesting that we are in that situation now. Certainly, things are worse in America. I think it's possible that the humanities in America are, are kind of over. But it, it, you know, I, I like to be optimistic about these things, and we shouldn't give up on on higher education. But there is just. Uh, a, a disproportionate contingent of of uh, this uh, ideological capture within higher education, and and as I say, we've seen what happens when that seeps into society in a half understood, filtered form. It can be quite dangerous for basic principles of a liberal democracy, including free speech, including equality, including freedom of the press, and um, and all the rest of it. I wonder, is it not though? Maybe partly. I mean, just setting aside the actual the core issues here, it's about a contestation of elites. Uh, there's a theory going around that um, that there's an overproduction of elites and that therefore, you know, the kind of credentialism you see where you now need to have a, a primary degree or maybe even a, a PhD to do a job that you didn't need any of those things for 20 years ago have, has led to a kind of a, you know, a, a sort of a, an arms war uh, in society and that the kind of thing you're talking about, because a lot of the time your book comes back to people being denied jobs uh, or losing their jobs is about that. It's about um, too many people scrabbling around for too few resources. Well, that's possibly true. I mean, I, I'm not making speculations about that, uh, particularly when I'm talking about people losing their jobs. Uh, it isn't the case that the the incidents that I cite, and, and indeed there's quite a number that I specifically mentioned in the, in the footnotes, the, these aren't uh, people who are, um, who are suffering from the consequences of an overburdened uh, system and uh, 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 too much competition within their industry. These are examples of people who have lost their jobs for having opinions that are unfashionable, or for misspeaking, or for uh, something they posted on Facebook ten years ago, which has now been dug up and misrepresented. It's a very different thing. It's a it's a it's a different discussion. I'm talking specifically about a new kind of intolerance that does not recognise the possibility that people can make mistakes, move on, and change their mind. Uh, that doesn't believe in redemption uh, and that essentially at its core has vengeance uh, that is driven by vengeance. And, and, and you see this all the time. A very good example would have been uh, the, 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 what was the name of the editor of the Waitrose food magazine, William Sitwell. I, I only mentioned this because it was a publicized event. Of course, most examples of cancel culture aren't publicized because they happen disproportionately to ordinary working people. But let's take this example. Uh, he received an email from a freelance journalist asking to write a, a piece on veganism he replied with a flippant, silly joke about whatever it was. It was to do with cannibalism. It was, shall we force feed 
vegans to I don't know what the joke was but it was silly I read it and I thought it was quite funny and just stupid it was difficult to take in an offensive way speaking as a vegetarian I, I didn't find it remotely offensive I thought it was silly and um rather than uh speak to him about it, rather than the freelance journalist saying I find that offensive can we have a conversation about this and resolve our difficulty here she screenshot the email put it online and within a day he was uh, forced to resign that's the difference it's a kind of difference in mentality uh, which is now just absolutely commonplace. It is getting worse. It does worry me. I spoke to a, head, a friend of mine who's a, a head of a school. Now, I spoke at this school a number of years ago, probably about four or five years ago. And there was there was a pushback there. There was a kind of prickliness, a kind of bigotry amongst the pupils where they were just not happy about hearing different viewpoints. Uh, but it wasn't that bad because I could push back on it and they were they were open enough to discuss. And she's now told me that it's... Uh, it's it's a lot worse now. It's it's there's a real um, blazing uh, intolerance that that is is becoming more and more prevalent among the young. This complete certainty, this very chilling certainty that you get whenever in history ideology uh, replaces truth and thought. It's it's just a standard feature because you're outsourcing your thinking capacity to a set of rules, and the the, the, the intolerance is becoming quite frightening. And a number of the teachers that I I'm still in contact with, obviously, from my days as a teacher, will say the same thing. There's a kind of intransigence now, uh, an unwillingness to even discuss issues uh, in an open way. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. And I don't claim to know all the answers for why that has happened. But what I will say is I think it is something that should concern anyone who cares about critical thinking and who cares about the values of a liberal democracy and free speech, indeed. Do we have any um, data on this? The reason I ask that is because these stories, like the story of the Waitrose stories, which which you just said, it's horrifying, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's abysmal. And, you know, I see stories closer to home or closer to home, at least in that they're in my profession of journalism in American newspapers, which are, which, which are equally bad. Uh, but then sometimes I kind of take a step back and I say, yes, that New York Times journalist was treated appallingly and I'm really cross about it. And then I kind of go... Well, 15 years ago, I didn't even have a New York Times subscription. The idea would have been absurd and I would have had no idea who that journalist was. And I'd never have heard about this. And perhaps this event would have happened or perhaps not. But in fact, probably what drove it was a whole bunch of technologies that finds me knowing about it again. And basically, I get into this argument loop of myself and I'm not sure how productive that is. But I suppose what I'm wondering is you see these stories and you see them nightly on American TV news where some... You know, not very bright associate professor in some no-name university somewhere issues some stupid edict and then it ends up on, on Twitter and the next thing you know, it's the top item on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show. Now, the thing itself may be terrible, but the scale at which it is now being amplified and broadcast may not represent the realistic scale of the problem. If you want to know the realistic scale of the problem, there's all sorts of uh, resources you can look at. A very good book by um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff is um, The Coddling of the American Mind. And they have they cite all sorts of studies. Um, j- just to give you an example, uh, there was a poll for the Pew Research Centre 2015, which find that, found that 40 percent of people between the ages of 18 and 34 were now in favour on government on the government prohibiting speech that is considered offensive that would be an example uh in our country actually there is um there have been a number of studies uh about um attitudes within universities and people self-censoring this is something that is happening now an awful uh, lot there was a recent study uh by in the u.s by the heterodox academy which found uh that more than half of the academics more than half of the respondents who took part in that and this is a big uh, field uh believe that they couldn't express certain views in an academic setting without damaging 
uh, their career trajectory. We've had similar studies in the UK which have found that a significant proportion of academics are now self-censoring because they believe that if they don't, their career will be either uh, destroyed or at least their promotion prospects will be destroyed. We have the similar situation on university campuses. The data is in on this. Uh, significant proportions of students are uncomfortable about expressing mainstream legitimate opinions uh, b- because they fear for what will happen if they do so. We're not talking about people who want to go on homophobic rants or talk about how women should be in the kitchen or anything reactionary or, or like this. We're talking about people who have very normal mainstream views that just don't happen to be uh, the establishment view. And by the establishment view, I'm not talking about the political establishment in terms of left and right. I'm, talk- I'm talking about uh, this uh, the social justice dis- establishment, which is very much... Uh, now predominant in all of our major cultural, educa- educational and political institutions. So that is a problem. The, the thing about this is we can take these isolated incidents and these can be spun by right wing commentators in order to promote a, a narrative of victimhood, which you do often find from from people on the right is what they will say is they'll take a prominent example of this and say, look, conservatives are being censored. Conservatives aren't able to say what they want anymore. Well, you know, that that's not true. That's just a, a, an example of people uh, pushing an agenda. Uh, but the the data does the data is in, you know, and 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 it's a worrying picture that it paints. And the problem is that a lot of people will just ignore that. There's a lot of denialism. I know when Gavin Williamson in the UK made the made the uh, his statement about free speech on universities, and the the treatment, the response was weird because you would hear uh, in articles in the New Statesman and the Guardian, those kind of publications, they just deny outright flat deny what the data so clearly reveals, and that's not really helpful. You know, we should just address that there is a problem, except that there is a problem. We know that, it's confirmed. And now we have to talk about what to do about it and not get distracted by the culture warriors of the left and the right who will try and turn this into uh, a, a, another scrap in their, in, their, in, their, in their battle. Isn't that part of the problem, really? Because the question of what, what are we going to do about it is inevitably coloured by the fact that, as I said at the, at the outset here, this has become sort of a central plank of ongoing political discourse in the, in the most mm. mainstream way. And so there's a, one of the things that I, I really like about your book and about, about your podcast as well is that you operate on the basis of that the people who you're talking about are are themselves operating on good faith until proved otherwise. And I think that's a really kind of core principle of, 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 of free speech, actually, to let free speech work. But clearly there's a lot of bad faith on on mm. all sides here. And there's, there's things like, I mean, you know, the... Um, the the dead cat strategy, which I think the Australian strategy, political strategist Linton Crosby devised, which is that if something embarrassing is going on in a room, take out a dead cat and fling it on the table and everybody goes, oh God, look at the <laughs> dead cat. And they forget what it was they were talking about. And it does seem to me that some of these issues are used as a dead cat strategy, particularly by conservatives and particularly in the United States. For example, Donald Trump behaved more appallingly than any American president in the country's 250-year history in a in a whirlwind of activity that ended up with a, a violent riot and an occupation of the country's legislature in the, in the middle of an important vote. And like two or three weeks later, he showed up at the prime annual conservative conference and the tag across the top of the conference was uncancelled, we're not going to be cancelled. That's a dead cat. And there's a lot of dead yeah. catting goes on about this subject. There is. And uh, I think the example you give is uh, exactly right. That's a, that's an example of the kind of thing that I would push back against and that I would resist. I would disagree with you, however, in, insofar as I think it is happening more commonly now on the, the social justice left. I, I specifically say social justice left because I don't think they are left because they're not concerned about economic inequality or class inequality. They're concerned about identity politics. But those are the people who are predominantly the ones who will who have 
And, and the reason actually for this is they are not interested in truth at heart. They don't believe in truth. This is why you hear phrases such as your truth, such as lived experience, because they don't, they don't believe in the notion of, 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 of truth and they don't think it's helpful, which is why they disregard data that disproves their point of view. Or they or they will claim that the uh, the data has been constructed within a, uh, a cis-heteropatriarchal framework and therefore has no validity. So when you're dealing with that kind of person, I mean, and and I'll give you a, a, another example. So there's a very, very there's a fantastic movement in the UK called Counterweight, which is set up to promote social liberalism and to push back against the illiberalism of critical social justice within the workplace. The kind of thing that will, where the equivalent of a Robin D'Angelo will come into a corporation to berate the staff about how racist they all are and about how anyone who is white is uh, complicit complicit in white supremacy and this kind of uh, divisive, dangerous uh, stuff where and there's a lot of money being made out of it. And of course, Counterweight is this group that is push, run by Helen Pluckrose is pushing back and saying actually social liberalism has a proven track record of addressing racial inequality and and uh, working to rectify the, those problems within society. Now, today, in fact, on Twitter, a, an academic uh, uh, literally smeared counterweight and said that these are just people who are not in, who are trying to dehumanize those who are interested in racial equality. In fact, to join counterweight, you have to pledge your support for racial equality above all else. Now, in that situation, what has happened is the academic is simply ignoring what the group is saying their aims are and pretending that their aims are these is this sort of nefarious underhand thing which is not stated. In other words, he is not entering to a discussion in a civil way or assuming good faith. And therefore, no progress can be made. Now, if he cared about his own movement and if he, ser- he was serious about racial equality, he would take them at their word and then talk about which is the best solution to racial equality. Is it critical race theory, which would say that all social situations have racism at their core, even our discussion now? Uh, they could say has racism. They would say has racism at its core, and they would say how is racism manifesting in this situation? Not has racism occurred in this situation? Is it critical race theory which would uh, try to segregate and has has indeed literally segregated uh, parents and students in in American schools? They, there was a recent case in California at the Brentwood School where parents were asked to segregate according to their skin colour for a parents' evening discussion with teachers, things like that. So the logical endpoint, of course, of this kind of identity politics is segregation. Um, Now, is that really the best way uh, to resolve issues of racial inequality in society? Or is it, in fact, making our society more racist? I think it is making our society more racist, and I think quite demonstrably so. And I would say that the progress that has been made since the civil rights of the 1960s, since those movements, shows just what can be achieved through social liberalism and an emphasis on equality and, yes, an emphasis on the ideal of colour blindness, which does not mean that you don't see uh, different races, but that you don't treat people differently on that basis. And I think that is a beautiful ideal that we need to reclaim. And it's not helpful to have a hyper-racialised society uh, it, uh, brought into being uh, by theorists who ultimately will, will make our society more divided and make what they, what they claim to want to achieve less likely. I suppose um, I'm slightly uncomfortable about getting into a deep debate. I'm both not qualified and I'm also uncomfortable about two white blokes having a debate about critical race theory. And when you've discussed it on your podcast, you've discussed it with people who come from broader perspectives in terms of their own personal histories. Yeah, I mean, I'm not uncomfortable because I think ideas transcend things like skin colour. And I think it's actually very important to be able to do this. It's very interesting as well that critical race theorists don't appear to be uncomfortable with this when Robin D'Angelo does it. And when she writes, I mean, this is a white woman who is probably the foremost and most recognisable voice of critical race theory. I, I think 
It's a misnomer. The overemphasis on identity, your race, gender and sexuality somehow gives you special privilege to be able to talk about certain issues. I think that's actually a very dangerous point of view. I think I... Well, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm not saying I refuse to talk about it or anything like that. I would prefer, as the host of this podcast, okay. to include sure. yeah. to, you know, to include a wider range of voices. Maybe we can come back and do it at, at, at some point. And, and, and that's and my you know, personal I... preference. I'm not scared of anybody. I'm not self-censoring. I'm making an editorial decision. People often confuse no, editorial that's fine. decisions. No, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not criticising you for that. I was actually making a broader point about this problem i actually do uh make an effort to include uh, those i'm interested above all to speak to the very people who advance these ideas the trouble is they never want to because they say that this isn't up up for debate i'm above all keen to i mean look most of my reading most of the stuff i read is their side of the argument i suppose when people hear you say that about critical race theory however well read or not they may not be in critical race theory itself they hear somebody criticising uh, implicitly movements which they're aware of, like Black Lives Matter or whatever it might be. And very often, and this is part of the bad faith arguments that go around, that's then misrepresent- misrepresented as being against moves towards uh, toward, towards greater racial equality. And quite clearly, yeah, yeah. Um, quite clearly, there are significant moves that still need to be made in that direction, particularly in the United States. And maybe one of the problems is that we get trapped into these American arguments a lot of the time. And they, right. they, they translate very badly. Uh, for example, the thorny, you know, centuries-long history of American racial politics rooted in slavery with the kind of the intimacy and the adjacency and, you know, the, the, the direct violence uh, that, that all yeah. that comes with is quite different from... Um, a separate set of questions which we have to address here in Ireland or in the UK. It's hugely different. It's it's incompatible, actually. I mean, you can't just take critical race theory, which is so rooted in America and American history and the legacy of slavery and that kind of thing. You can't take the even intersectionality, the the views of Kimberly Crenshaw and, you know, and Derek Bell. You can't take these ideas and just uh, transplant them wholesale onto a completely different cultural context. But that is, in fact, what is happening. This is why I'm very nervous about it. Um, because it, it's simply incoherent. It doesn't work. Um, and this is why when critical race theory starts seeping into schools, as it is doing over here, uh, and when we have uh, people claiming that uh, our schools and universities, even even uni- uh, yeah, higher education in the UK is systemically racist, when all of the data tells us that that is absolutely not the case. Well, you know, it does. it, 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 it is just an incoherent stance to take. So I, I would say... Absolutely. Part of my resistance against critical race theory is that it simply doesn't apply over here. But 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 actually, I would also say that in America, it's important to push back against it. I think the new group out there, FAIR, which is the uh, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which is pushing back against critical race theory, because it rec- and the work of Christopher Rufo, who I've spoken to on my, on my podcast, uh, because it recognises that even in the American context, critical race theory is disastrous and 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 actually is likely to accentuate racial like, racial problems, but yes, you're right. I think it's I think we we shouldn't be uh, bringing in theories that simply don't apply to this country or our history. And also, is there something it seems to me culturally American about the way some of these things play out? There's America's always had this dichotomy between, you know, um, um, Puritans burning witches in the 17th century and, you know, enlightenment gentlemen devising a constitutional democracy in in the 18th. And I think that that's always played down to... America is a weird place because, you know, it, it holds up individuality as, a, as almost a religion in a way that most countries don't, but it's also incredibly conformist in many ways. Yeah, I think that's right. 
Uh, no, I disagree with you. I don't think I, I don't have anything more to add, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, then let me right. go on to the, whole, the, 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 the actual question of free speech, because to be honest, I probably thought a few years ago that I was pretty close to a free speech fundamentalist. And, and I'm not so sure about that now. And it's not because my views have changed, but because some of these issues have you know, forced me to, to think a bit more of them. And, you know, people talk about, you know, the marketplace of ideas um, and the marketplace of ideas, it, any marketplace by definition is regulated to some extent. And if you look at something mm. like the last great information technology revolution, Gutenberg's invention of the printing press, that was followed in the centuries that, that succeeded it by, you know, the introduction of defamation law, of copyright law, of all kinds of constraints, many of them terrible, some of which we've got rid of, some of which we've we've finessed. I've got all kinds of constraints in what I do in my job as an editor, as a writer, both in terms of internal guidelines uh, and outside laws, including a press ombudsman and a, and a press council, which we have here in Ireland, um, free speech has never fully existed, has it? I mean, the most powerful method of communication still right now is broadcasting, which has always been yeah. highly regulated. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't. I think free speech is a very rare and actually relatively recent development in, in uh, human history. I think we are very lucky to live in a society that has it. And I think, uh, you know, we, we, this is why I'm concerned. And I think it's very easy to get complacent about it. You know, uh, uh, but it, it will slip away. I think the the kind of constraints you're describing uh, are not really often free speech issues. So, for instance, I mean, uh, defamation, uh, libel, uh, you know, there are other ways in which you can use speech to commit crimes, espionage, perjury, blackmail. You know, uh, this I'm not someone who says, oh, you should have the right to blackmail, use your speech to blackmail someone else because I'm against criminal activity. Um, it's not. It's not a free speech issue, and those things sort of get get conflated. Should I ask you? Uh, should I be allowed stand outside a Jewish family's house with a swastika flag, reading out the protocols of the elders of Zion? It's already illegal to commit acts of harassment, and I would suggest that that probably veers into the harassment territory. I would say that if you were protesting peacefully, then I'm I'm happy to support that. I don't support what you're protesting in that case. I think it's abhorrent. Uh, but if, I think the if alternative I did the same is worse. Thing at somebody online on a regular basis all the time in other words i was exactly. in their feed that, all the time well that would be auto, that would well for a start that would be definitely harassment if you were continually uh, targeting an individual that is already against the law of course um so a lot of the concerns that you're raising about free speech i think people should just console themselves these things are already illegal it's it's not it's not legal to harass someone in that in that way uh if someone wants to stand outside my house with a big picket that says gay people should burn in hell, um, then I think they're wasting their time and I'm going to ignore them. I'm probably going to, I might attempt to argue with them, but if they're too insane on this issue, I will probably just ridicule them uh, or whatever. But I don't want them arrested. Um, and the reason I don't want them arrested is because I don't want to dilute a principle that is much bigger than them. In other words, I don't want to give them the power that they don't deserve to have me renege on my fundamental principles. So that's that's where I think if they were following me around the street and continually uh, uh, targeting me in that way, then that would become harassment, wouldn't it? Which is already illegal. And we'd, so we don't have to worry about it. I suppose I mean, that's, that, that's, of course, absolutely fair enough. I think what it illustrates is the problem. I mean, I mentioned culture wars. Your, your podcast is called Culture Wars. And a lot of this stuff, partly because of the new digital technology, which it's which it's conducted on, reduces mm. incredibly quickly to a binary, a black and a white, a for or yeah. against, or all those kind of things. Whereas what I was saying about I'm not a fundamentalist anymore is that I see that these things work on a spectrum. And I would see myself as being yeah. a strong defender of free speech. But, I, you know, culture changes over time. Uh, social norms change over time. 
to some extent, laws change over time. Within all those, I would see myself as allowing, wanting to allow as much free speech as possible. But I'm aware that there are there are subtle adjustments there. It's not an either or or black or white. Which is exactly why we need to be able to restore civil conversations between people who disagree, and particularly when it comes to free speech. You'll know from having read my book that I'm not dismissing people's concerns uh, about free speech. I'm addressing them uh, in good faith. And that is because I don't think it's helpful to simply take an absolutist stance and say, I'm not going to listen to what you've got to say on this issue. That's actually what I think is at the very core of most of the problems we face at the moment is people aren't talking to each other, you know? And I think that the culture wars is a brilliant example of it. I think the culture wars, we need to end these. This needs to stop, you know? The reason my podcast is called Culture Wars is because I'm a critic of the culture wars, not a participant. And I think it's very important that those two things are not conflated and that we are able to uh, restore civil dialogue and and disagreement. You know, I want to have the conversations about free speech, the very things that you're describing. I understand that it is complex and that when someone is, uh, some hate-fueled demagogue is is calling for some awful things, uh, I understand why people are concerned about that. I understand why why, why why people are concerned about the notion of hate speech, even though I, I, re- I reject the premise. Um, I think, uh, but, but we'll get absolutely nowhere if we don't take each other's viewpoints seriously and discuss them in good faith. We'll get nowhere at all. So that's that's really, I suppose, what I'm attempting to urge in the writing of the book is not to polarise, is to is to is to bridge those gaps and to treat each other like adults and behave like adults. Does the internet make that impossible, though? Yeah, probably. I think. I think. Um, well, it doesn't make it impossible in insofar as we've always got the freedom to get off it. I think um, you can't have these discussions on Twitter, for instance. I've, I mean, I've learned that to my peril. That it's pretty impossible. I mean, well, to be fair, every now and then, one in every hundred, you know, times when someone comes at me with a, a an, an argument, you know, for a start, the vast majority of people don't know what I think. They're just misrepresenting what I think, and I spend most of my time correcting them on their on on, on what they perceive my viewpoint to be, which isn't useful anyway. Um, but once you get past that hurdle, once they understand what you're trying to say, but they still disagree, then you can have a productive uh, dialogue. But it rarely happens on Twitter. And the reason I think is probably it's too performative. I think there's always one eye on on the invisible spectators that are in- inevitably there and therefore ego intrudes. And whenever I find ego intruding in, in a debate, and that includes my own, I will withdraw from it because I don't think that's helpful. I think it means you're no longer interested in getting nearer to the truth it means you're only interested in, in your own status i mean these companies built these emotionally driven machines in order to sell advertising uh, i don't mm. think they gave a damn about the political implications it probably didn't even occur to them at all actually and it, it's, it's dubious about how much they care about them about them now as well but the way that those machines are built is just totally inimical to the sort of yeah. you know civilized discussion that you're you're, you're talking about there yeah, couldn't agree more. I think the best thing everyone could do is get off Twitter. Uh, I, you know, I'm a hypocrite because I'm on it. Um, but I I do think it's ultimately very... I will get off it eventually. I think it's 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 got to the point where, uh, you know, there can be no possibility of, of any serious discussion on, on social media. But, but you I or I getting off it is not going to change the world. Uh, no, it's fan, not. Fan, fantastic though we are. And there is a question, doesn't it? Come back to my point about the... The, the marketplace of ideas, you know, previous technologies, you know, people have figured out some parameters as to what they yeah. can or can't do. Like I, I'd be, um, my life is a better place because Donald Trump isn't on Twitter, but I'm also deeply concerned that Twitter can just ban Donald Trump or indeed anybody else at the same time. So I'm, I'm conflicted about that as I am among many other things. The difficulty is that there really are no rules. Um, 
because of the way the whole thing's been set up, largely because of American laws. Yeah. We can blame the Americans again for this, of course. I mean, that's yeah, it's, it's always fun to do. I mean, that's a very good example, isn't it, of where your your own principle becomes conflicting with with you know what something that you just instinctively approve of i mean take donald trump you know i mean i'm absolutely no fan of donald trump and i suppose it would be very easy for me to rejoice in him uh not having that platform anymore uh but then that would be for me to completely surrender my principle when it comes to free speech and and also i do think it is in the public interest to hear what he has to say being you know as he was leader of the free world so i think that's quite important um and it does disturb me that you know there is a bigger a bigger principle at stake here which is that we are living in this age, this digital age, which we haven't, you know, this is all so new and we are dealing with effectively a, uh, a oligopoly of, of, um, of Silicon Valley tech giants who have more collective power than a nation state, but none of the democratic accountability. And they are able to wield such incredible power that they can actually deplatform uh, <laughs> an elected leader of a country. So it is a frightening prospect. And we do have to address this, this argument about them being private companies so they can do what they want uh, you know, I suppose technically if uh, private companies could say, well, I won't, we won't have gay people on our platform, but I don't imagine that for a second that people would be happy with that. I think we do have to address the reality of living in an age when the uh, the chief uh, and most obvious de facto public square of the globe is social media and is dominated by just a handful of probably ideologically driven billionaires who have absolutely no accountability to the public. That is a problem, and it's it's something we do have to address. And just ignoring it and wishing it away isn't going to help. But the people like who complain point. about it the most at the moment, because they're, lo- they're losing at the moment, and you're absolutely right, it's the people who are on the receiving end of this stuff. Yeah, that's mm. why they're complaining about it, and that's why you're getting it at CPAC and everything like that. They're the people who are largely responsible for setting up in the first place, because if those companies are anything, they are a hugely successful outgrowth of American capitalism and the free market. Yeah, and that just goes to show why you need to... Uh, you need to. This is why you need to stand up for free speech, particularly when it's your enemies who are being threatened, uh, who are being censored. That's why it's particularly important because it's all very well uh, at the moment. Yes, you're right. Uh, conservatives tend to be more heavily censored on on social media platforms, and the Biden administration is has no appetite whatsoever to do anything about the problem of big tech censorship because at the moment uh, they are ideologically in line with the Jack Dorseys of the world. But the problem is. That's a very myopic point of view, because where will we be in 10 years time, in 20 years time? Uh, you've, you've mentioned uh, the, the conservatives who emphasise the free market. And where did that lead us? Well, nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. So I think there are principles that transcend uh, notions of, of left and right and that you should hold fast to those principles. And it's hard because you end up having to defend the speech rights of people you despise. Um, it, you know, there's, there's no point in defending uncontroversial speech because it's never at risk. So it's something that I think, you know, the principle is bigger than the people. But is there not a qualitative, or I'm not sure if it's a qualitative or a quantitative difference, between the reality that, uh, on one level, speech is freer than it ever was before because of these Mm. platforms. And that means, for example, that I see all kinds of shite coming at me on Twitter, which I would never have had in my relatively civilised, normal life 15 or 20 years ago. And people are able to say these things, whereas in a way they, they could always have scribbled them on borrow notes and stuck them through my letterbox I suppose but you know they didn't because that wasn't the the practicality of it and that we haven't managed yet to do what previous generations finally did usually after a lot of messing around which is to figure out how we apply the principles of a free and fair and open democracy to this new communications technology it's not just a question of stopping Jack Dorsey banning Donald Trump it's something that goes a lot deeper than that 
Yeah, it's, and I don't know the answers. I think there is, there is, of course, the block function which is built into the social media system. So in a sense, there, there is no reason for uh, for them to employ so many thousands of people to monitor speech on the platform because if there is speech you don't want to hear, you can simply block uh, the person who is making that speech because part of the a core aspect of freedom of speech, of course, is the right not to listen. People don't get to demand your attention. So there, there is, in fact, the, the block function on, on Twitter is the guarantee of free speech on the platform. So it's already there, really. Uh, and I think we just now have to address what do we do about the problem? If it was simply the case that Twitter were uh, deleting accounts that, that uh, break the law, for instance, or post libelous threads or things like that, then that would be one thing. But that's not the situation we're facing. Uh, they routinely uh, ban accounts that have the opinions they don't like. But the reason they, they, the reason they do that is to go back to the American legislation in the, in the 1990s was because a bunch of politicians, including many of the conservative ones, some of whom are still around and are now complaining about this, reckoned they needed to do that to make these viable businesses because they were afraid, for example, of things like these new services being flooded with pornography and spam. Um, yeah. And in order for the companies to be able to set up what they called kind of walled sites, walled gardens to protect against that kind of thing, they gave them the the right or they, they, they guaranteed them that right to make decisions about what couldn't and wouldn't be on their platform. And they weren't they weren't wrong to do so. It's actually quite essential, particularly with the proliferation of comment sections on news outlets. It is completely unfeasible to suggest that any particular outlet should be responsible for everything that is posted on their site. It, it wouldn't be, you know, if they didn't have those protections, they would become more censorious. They would they would have to ban more things because they would be worried about being sued or being arrested. So actually, those protections. I mean, you're talking about the the Communications Decency Act, the, uh, Section two thirty, and that is an important protection. But the wording does give them the loophole uh, to therefore censor with impunity. And that was not the original intention. And that's important. That needs to be understood. So it might just be simply a matter of changing the wording so that they can't simply remove material that they find offensive or objectionable on ideological grounds. But they can, they do retain the right to remove uh, illegal content or indeed that they will not be held legally accountable for illegal content that appears on their platform. That would be possible. But as I say, there is no appetite among the current administration to do anything about it. It's actually quite an easy fix. I'll ask you a last question to come back, I think, to the the, the core point of um, of the book. I mean, I'm uh, I'm an old fellow at this point. Uh, I think young people are generally stupid. Um, they have lots <laughs> of silly opinions and they express them with far too much confidence because they don't know enough. I was the same myself. So I, you know, I, I, I know all about that. I think academics are often a pain in the ass and deliberately opaque and full of ideas that wouldn't stand up to scrutiny in the real world. I have lots of other prejudices like these. And I, and I also think that that life has always been thus to some extent. You know, students have always been that way. Academics have always been a bit like that. Is there a possibility that this is just a moment in cultural history? I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, you 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 uh, write for and your podcast is unspiked. That comes out of a weird little Trotskyite groupuscule in the in the 1980s which had all kinds of strange views about how uh, the entirety of society was a was a capitalist scam and it needed to be ripped apart and there was no point in reforming any of it to make lives better make them worse so that you could build it all back from scratch and you know and and now look where they are now in some ways they're quite similar to the kind of woke progressive movement you're describing now it's almost the same kind of thing to some extent no, not really, because you're, you're describing, I mean, this is a very good example, I think, of the overemphasis on uh, political tribalism. You know, the, 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 
those who dismissed spiked because it came out of the ashes of the RCP, the Revolutionary Communist Party back in the day, forget that the RCP in fact disbanded when I was still at school. It hasn't been around for over 20 years. It's not relevant anymore. So it's just an it's just a means to uh, it's uh, attack something through uh, this kind of conspiratorial no, no, idea. No, 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 that, that's that's fine. But what I'm saying is the RCP was the kind of the which you know mostly existed on on college campuses was yeah. in a way the kind of progressive movement, part of the progressive movement of its day, you know? Well, I think what you're saying is that, you know, you often get these glitches where you get these sort of radical movements that ultimately die off, I suppose, is, is what you're saying, and that we shouldn't worry too much about them. Uh, that's true, except the RCP, of course, and, and never uh, became the dominant force in the civil service, in higher education, in schools, in politics, in law enforcement, uh, in the media, in the arts. Uh, and that, that is what has happened with critical social justice and intersectionality. It is the dominant force now. And we can pretend it's not all we like, um, but the evidence is quite clear on this and we should, we're going to have to do something about it. So I, I like to be optimistic and I'd love to say, oh yeah, I think this is probably just a, a product of a few young people. Uh, but we know that's not the case anymore. I remember about five years ago when I used to talk about this stuff, people, the, the most common criticism I had was, oh, well, you're just talking about a few students on university campuses being a bit overzealous. And as you say, young people tend to have that idea that they know everything and, and of course they, they don't. And there's nothing new about this. But I don't get that criticism very often now uh, nowadays because so evidently the, the evidence of everything I've been talking about is plain to see for everyone and the culture war has exploded into the mainstream. And therefore... It isn't something that we can just say is confined to the recesses of student unions and and certain uh, dark areas on the Internet. It is now mainstream. It is now institutionally powerful. And when uh, you get uh, institutional forms of power that are so regressive and are so illiberal, I think it is a, a duty to push back against it if you believe in liberalism, which I do. And I think that's why this is a different thing. Uh, and it is a, a bigger worry. And it's not just down to dismissing young people, which is something I absolutely never do. Uh, I, I, I think uh, this is why I often talk at schools and universities and things. I've often, I've often found, to be honest, when it comes to this particular issue, that the most intransigent are people from my own generation. It, it seems to be that generation who have, who have the clout within universities now who are particularly intolerant. And uh, But, you know, so maybe it will die off. I hope you're right. I hope, you know, I, I think... Being optimistic is great, but I think when it comes to the erosion of liberal values, uh, if you ignore the problem, then they they do erode. So it actually takes active involvement to to preserve the liberties that we all seem to take for granted. The free speech, as we know from looking at history, as I've said, is a miraculous and rare thing. Uh, it's not the case that we we won that argument and now we've got it in the bag and we can we can rest on our laurels and it's going to be fine forevermore. I think the, the signs that we're seeing at the moment, I don't call it a crisis, as you'll know from the book, but I do say we are seeing the first signs of that slipping away and we need to be vigilant. And that's all I'm saying. Andrew Doyle, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Free Speech and Why It Matters by Andrew Doyle is published by Constable. Thanks to Andrew and to our producer Suzanne Brennan and JJ Vernon, our engineer. We will be back in your feed very soon indeed. But until then, remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.